Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the event horizon where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. And I'm your other host, Susan Fox. And And I'm your guest, Gideon Marcus. There you are. Welcome to the show. Very well done. Usually our guests don't leap in like that. <laughs> yes, well, usually your guests aren't the kind who leap through 55 years into the past. Why 55 years? We are we are speaking to Gideon about his website called galacticjourney.org. 55 years ago, science fiction, science fact and fiction. And it is a, a an historical blog uh, that... You know, it, it, it details, uh, what happened in science fiction, in science fact, 55 years ago today. And uh, what a fascinating idea for a website. <laughs> and as I was asking, why 55 years? So, so here's the conceit. Imagine if you lived 55 years ago, but you had a computer and the ability to access everybody, millions of people around the globe, the ability to, to blog as you do today, you know, and get into flame wars and comment on the science fiction and the space race of the time. And, and what would you say if you lived back then and yet were living in 1961, not in the present day? Why 55 years? If you look back in time, if you, if you, if you look at at pictures or TV shows, the time before 55 years ago is kind of this alien black and white weird looking place it's history it's it's books it's it's not now but if you look at 55 years ago what you see is it looks like today just just a little crappier you know the phones are bigger the the, the, the cars are clunkier although you know if you live in southern california the, the a lot of the cars are the same yeah uh, we had rocket ships we had atomic power um we 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 had the the opportunity to blow ourselves to kingdom come several ways over we had uh racism we had chauvinism we had hope we had medicine we had everything you think we had star trek we had almost had doctor who we had the twilight zone so it's a world that if you live there you go yeah i i kind of get this place i understand what this is about it's not too alien it's where we came from and I think that's the most important thing about it. So it's not the number 55, but the time period from the beginning of the space race to the moon landing that is a basic interest to you. Yes? About, so, that, yeah. about that decade? It's not I, – I wouldn't say that. So m- most times when you're time traveling, whether whether you're the doctor or doing a slingshot effect around a planet or whatever – 
you're you're sort of jumping around. You're sort of magpieing through time, and you get a brief instance. Oh, oh, oh! Look, there's Lincoln being shot. Oh, there's the Wright brothers flying. There, there's the first mm-hmm. rocket launch. And that's not what it felt like to live back then. You lived through life one day at a time. So the most important thing was picking a period far enough from today that that it was different but close enough that it was recognizable and then sticking there. So the galactic journey is from 55 years ago. That means right now, as we speak, it's July 26, 1961. Yesterday, Kennedy just gave a stirring speech about how he wasn't going to be intimidated by the Soviet Union regarding the Berlin crisis. And tomorrow it's going to be July 27th, and next year it's going to be 1962, and the year after that's going to be 63. And the whole the whole conceit of the concept mm-hmm. is the traveler does not know what's coming next, just like the people at the time didn't know what's coming next. So the mindset that you get is not some all-powerful, omniscient person who knows what's to come mm-hmm. and is just, just waiting for iPads to come around. This is a person for whom... Uh, the Mercury astronauts are, are the coolest thing, and and Rod Serling is is the neatest writer on television. Oh, he and sure I was. can't wait until tomorrow. And wouldn't it be cool if women weren't treated like crap in the workplace, and if black people had civil rights? And yeah, I think it. I think that would be really cool if people women and, and it would be a very like crap and, and it would still be people. a cool thing but yeah right right exactly still be not, cool not now right and we still so, don't have so, it so the thing about calling out the past is obviously it's not just a history blog anybody can open up a book and get history mm-hmm. they can they can read diaries whatever so obviously my challenge is to make the content relevant to the modern reader and that's why i have an article in 1958 about global warming and wouldn't mm-hmm. it be interesting if if the temperature went up a couple of degrees in the next 50 years i guess we'll have to wait and see and find out, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, the what separates this, I think, from uh, from other historical efforts is, as you say, the conceit that uh, that this is a fellow from 1961 who does not know what's coming, and uh, and is writing about his thoughts and and the events of the day, uh, and. Uh, it's the entire frame of reference that makes this entire website a work of science fiction. You have uh, been nominated for some awards for this, haven't you? Well, I, I guess. Um, I know that a few people have nominated me for the Hugo, which mm-hmm. sounds really impressive, but, but I understand many people can be nominated for the Hugo. It's The real challenge is becoming a finalist. Um, but it was very flattering. I... Uh, I, I mm-hmm. I googled myself online as 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 people are wont to do, and and I noticed that I'd been recommended by the puppies. And, uh, oh well, that's hmm. <laughs> or at least one faction. They're not the only ones who nominated me, but I was on the 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 sad puppy recommendation for 2015, and I thought that was very interesting because, as far as I know, it, I I'm much more attuned with fan interests of 1961 than 2015. Mm-hmm. Maybe so, they are too. <laughs> Right, you know, they, well, I that's think the, the thing. I think they picked me because they thought, well, here's 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 a, a here's somebody who knows sort of blog, mm-hmm. and, and didn't realize that that my uh, my bent is towards the progressive, even though it takes place a long time ago. Well, and and but the uh, I think what the sad puppies celebrate is the uh, the the silver age of science fiction, if you will, uh, back when everything was new, everything was amazing, and. Uh, 
even even small things were great strides forward and it was a, a bold adventurous time and it's it doesn't compare to the to i mean the re- what we have as the real world today out. doesn't yeah. doesn't really compare to the excitement that we felt when we uh we heard the voice of the mercury astronaut as he orbited the earth it's it's interesting that you say that one of the one of the things about doing this, I've actually been doing it since 1954, mm-hmm. um, but I only started writing about it in 1958 when I thought, you know, maybe there's two or three people who'd be interested. And I, I didn't realize I was going to get reblogged by io9 and suddenly have thousands of people hitting me every day. Um, in 1954, if you looked around the science fiction magazines, and that's what I do, I'll cover the science fiction magazines every month, and I mm-hmm. think that's what makes the blog unique. Is it, it's one of the only places where you can get a review of fantasy and science fiction galaxy astounding later analog every right. month. So mm-hmm. You get you get these short stories as they came out in the context that they came out, and the prevailing sentiment of the time in 1954 was, "Oh my God, science fiction is dying." In 1950, we had, you know, up to 40 monthly science fiction digests. And by 1954, that number had gone down to like 20. By 1960, the number was down to six. Mm-hmm. And, and people had been and saying that this golden age was gone. Never mind a, a silver age. People thought that this, this golden age of John W. Campbell and astounding and, and, lantern-jawed men solving the problems of space with with science and cold logic and you know, slide that, rules pardon me and slide rules and you slide, know. Rule, yeah, slide yeah. rules yes <laughs> um was all coming to an end and, uh-huh. and kind of getting weird and touchy-feely and 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 science fiction was kind of having a, a midlife crisis right around 1960 um, and I think what's really happening is, is what happens whenever a new era is beginning. Um, it, it's sort of trying to find itself. Mm-hmm. Um, science is becoming more psychological. It's becoming more about the characters. You're getting more of a crossover between literary fiction and science fiction. Um, fantasy and science fiction is going a bit too far in the literary direction at the at the expense of uh, readability. Uh, whereas astounding is 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 now analog and, and clinging desperately to the past. Um, but underneath that, you've got this interesting, what they call a new wave, and, and rightfully so. Um, you've got women coming to the fore in a big way mm-hmm. for the first time. And by 1961, I count at least 20 strong, and when I say strong, I don't mean by talent. I mean, obviously, they're talented, but in terms of consistency. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got 20 women authors. Um, you still don't have... Uh, a real strong minority or queer contingent, but that's on the horizon. Mm-hmm. Um, who admit it? Right. Yeah, well, that's it too. I mean, yeah. you have Joanna Russ, and she's just written her first story, and and I don't know that she ever came out so much as just became visible. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. Chip Delaney hasn't hasn't come on. He's still a fan, you know. Um, but. You're starting to get some very interesting things talked about. Ted Sturgeon wrote uh, Venus Plus X, which was mm-hmm. a, a book about sex, really. It was mm-hmm. about, you know, uh, gender roles changing, and then in the future, we basically becoming an androgynous race, um, which is, you know, fascinating progressive stuff for 1960. Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, it's 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 interesting that, uh, that science fiction uh, began to fade right around then because in cinema 
uh, at this Te- same time. Television and cinema. Television and get, cinema getting were... Getting a kick in the pants. That. Yeah, because uh, this is the era that we classically call the, atom- the age of atomic cinema. Right. And uh, so you had uh, giant ants and... and, and uh, uh, killer robots firing electric beams and all of the the gee whiz stuff made out of soup cans and stovepipes and whatever else they could find lying around. Japanese kaijuku pictures. Uh huh. You know. <laughs> right. And, and uh, so we had this entire counter uh, counter thing going on in cinema as the books were were uh, dwindling in number. In um, television, you get your, um, you know. Even cheaper, but uh, your what? Your Outer Limits, your Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. Then by by sixty four, you're starting to see uh, Lost in Space, and then Star Trek made it big. Yeah, and uh, in 1963, Lost in Space was on television in black and white, and their first year was black and white. And then in 1964, suddenly they were in color, and everything changed. And uh, so there were there were pivotal technologies that were that were uh, taking place and evolving right around in this time that you're exploring on your on your website galacticjourneys.org. So, so, so you know maybe the death of the the written word was being you know <laughs> see, the see, written I, word I, may I, have been well, supplanted I, by I, the visuals. I talk about science fiction dying as a, as as it's ironic and it's ironic mm-hmm. even in 1961 because the fact is science fiction didn't die in 1954. Well, obviously not. And in 1961, while it's true there are fewer magazines, um, it's also true that the quality of what's in them has increased. So maybe it's a matter of the, the, the field needed to be distilled. But more than that, by 1961, you're starting to see an increase in novel output. And the novel really becomes the, the chief way that mm-hmm. science fiction starts to get around. So I, I don't think that science fiction ever was at risk of dying. What was happening was, as various forms of it were were giving way to other ones, people mm-hmm. were getting worried. It is true that when you could read the newspaper and see feats that had been predicted five years ago as, as you know, expected to happen in a hundred years, and mm-hmm. no one expected a rocket that soon. Certainly no one expected to be on the moon by 1970, at least not mainstream. Um, but then it goes the other way, you know. By the time we're in space, then people are like, "Oh well, crap! We made it to space really quickly. We're gonna we're gonna be in the stars in another twenty years." And of course, that was wrong. Science science works in the in the in the words of Stephen Jay Gould in punctuated equilibria. Um, <laughs> yes, yes, it is. You know. <laughs> That's it a good never way of works it. In, a, in a smooth line. So. Mm-hmm. So science fiction is always going to need to be around because because science is never going to keep pace. It's going to either be too fast or too slow. It's. Um Guess we need another crisis to kick us out there, besides robots. You know, well, and I think global warming certainly fills the bill. Mm. You know, it's uh, the technology, the 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 romance that we had as a society with technology uh, is similar to what we experienced as a nation with our uh, love affair with cars. Uh, it's all great until you realize what you're doing to the, your planet with it, and uh, and now or, we or have. Do a, you put that nuclear waste? Yeah. Well, fire know. fire is a great thing until uh, well, you until you burn your house down. Yeah, I don't know. Jam it into a nuclear corset. 
<laughs> Stop. And 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 that's really the whole point of science fiction. Science fiction's job is is not to predict the future. It's to extrapolate a trend. If this goes on, to mm-hmm. make you think about it. Yep. There's there was those are the three laws of science fiction. What if, if only, which is the good one, and if this goes on, which is usually bad. Right. Well, and it's interesting because in in 1960, the big rage is overpopulation. Everybody mm-hmm. thinks mm-hmm. we're going to end up. Uh, on a world with gasp, perhaps 10 billion people, and there's no way this planet can sustain that. And as a result, we'll end up in a, in a highly class society, and, and resources will be super scarce, and eventually we'll be eating Soylent Green. That's something that comes out in a few years, but but the concept is there. And what's fascinating is no one really foresaw birth control. Um, and birth control comes out in a big way in 1961 with Enovid. Mm-hmm. And it takes about 10 years for people to realize, oh, there's a link between prosperity and, and declining birth rates. And all of a sudden you've got this whole trope, this, this whole dystopian overcrowded world genre of science fiction, which, which so characterized everything is going to just disappear. But that's right. I'm right in the middle of it in 1961. I'm, I, cannot help but notice the parallels between 1961 and what's happening right now. I mean, we are... Uh, All the anti-choice uh, movements. Well, <laughs> well, that and I, I was going for the, uh, I was going for the dystopian future stuff. <laughs> I mean, there was... Uh, um, yeah, Mad Max doesn't look nearly so fun if you're actually facing it. You know, last year, the third presidential debate actually took place exactly 55 years after the third presidential debate of the 1960 election season on the exact same day. And you had you had two candidates, the most disliked presidential candidates in history, um, arguing from flash rather than substance on a TV based debate when they left issues behind. I mean, it's. You're right. Fifty-five years. It's it's our world, just a little crappier. <laughs> That's just uh, well, and yeah. and it shows yeah, you the power is. of the media. People who listen to the uh, the the uh, Nixon Kennedy debate and didn't see it, but but just heard the voices, thought that Nixon won, and everyone who looked and saw Nixon sweating and looking stressed out, while Kennedy was all cool as a cucumber, thought that Kennedy won. There, so there is definitely the some truth to that. And, and having watched all four debates and commented on them, and I've got a whole series of articles on the website, uh, it's fascinating. I made that observation as well. Yeah. But regarding the genre, here's the other thing. 55 years ago, the science fiction was good, too. There's a mm-hmm. lot of stuff back there that most people don't know about. Or if they do, they, they know some of the big ones. They know who Asimov is. They know who Heinlein is. But do they know who Zena Henderson is? Do they know who Catherine McLean is? Do they know who Robert Sheckley is? Oh, There's God, all these they should, amazing, they? great writers. And not only that, because of a quirk of copyright law before things became super draconian and you couldn't uh, reprint anything, not that I'm showing where my biases are, <laughs> uh, before 1964... Um, there's uh, about 80% of everything that was written is in the public domain. So one of the things I do is as I read these stories, if it's in the public domain, and I, I have mm-hmm. a, a copyright expert whose sole job is to scan this stuff out, um, I scan in the work and I make it available for distribution. So these stories that, that 
are not what we're not widely accessible can now be read by everybody for free. And every time I rescue a story like that, it's it's like the stories of the people who who rescue those libraries from from I don't know ISIS raiders or whatever. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, burning Alexandria. It's like oh my gosh, I've I found the lost play of Aeschylus. <laughs> Looking back on what. We came from. I don't know where I was going with you that. You have to know. Well, you have to know where you've been before you know where you're going. Yeah, and <laughs> and and uh, to be able to look back at these works and to be able to uh, uh, look at them in the historical context is is of great value. You know, both literarily and and in terms of uh, just examining the the state of the culture. So so what's oh, sorry, fifty so what's fifty five years ago today? I mean, the Hugo ballot should be out for uh, for the nineteen sixty one World Con. The Hugo ballot is out, and here's a fun thing I do. So at the end of every year, I look back over all of the stuff I've reviewed. I, I keep I keep notes on everything, and I, I give everything one to five stars. So five stars is sublime, and one stars is usually Randall Garrett. And, uh, <laughs> Ouch! And... Uh, so at the end of the year, I do what's called the Galactic Stars, and I see which was the best novel, mm-hmm. the best novella, the best short story. Um, and then when the Hugos roll around, I compare notes. And often uh, we're, we're fairly close. I mean, quality is quality. Mm-hmm. Um, because as, as Sturgeon says, 90% of everything is crap. crap. And that's mm-hmm. one of the services that I provide the reader is I read everything so you don't have to. That That said, I have found... So in in the course of running the journey, I've, I've collected uh, a, a tale of commenters who who are really cool. They'll actually get into character and pretend they're also in 1961 with me, and we'll have these great debates over things like what's better, wire recorders or tape recorders. Mm-hmm. Um, but what what's really interesting is everybody has differing tastes. So mm-hmm. some people have very similar tastes to me. Some will have very different. So it's important that I save every story because something that I hate, somebody else might love. Um, and I found that several times. So, um, so what's on the Hugo ballot in sixty? Yeah, I have no idea. I haven't gotten that part yet. I don't want spoilers. Um, last year, uh, I guess is this year Canticle for Leibowitz? Last year, I know you're going to edit it. So that's that's, that's the great that's the great things. thing about uh, doing these shows and not having to do them live. Is right. That, that we can stop the show and and uh, go look things up, and you know Google is our friend. And in 1961, Google was not your friend. <laughs> uh, yeah, in but 1961, you... you were relying on Forey Ackerman and his, the books in his refrigerator, which was a great resource. I mean, he, what a wonderful man! I don't know if you ever met him. Uh, I have not met him. I met a guy recently who did, um, John Carr. He's sort of mm-hmm. the heir to the, to the, um, ah. mm-hmm. to Jerry Purnell's War and War World and, uh, H. Beam Piper's, um, Fuzzy Worlds. Um, he knew all of those, all of those Silver Age people. Yeah. Uh, I actually, uh, I actually got the opportunity to meet Forey Ackerman. Uh, oh, did you? Yeah, I was. I, I think toured I was, the house. <laughs> was, huh? I toured the house. It was fabulous. <laughs> um, I think I was. Oh, I'm trying to remember how old I was. I think I was probably 19, and I'm going to be 60 this year. So it was a while back. 
Oh, good. So you're alive. Oh, yeah, we're yeah. already alive. Five-year-old little we're boy. Little we're little kids, but then. we are. We you do should have come in. And, <laughs> I'm not allowed to watch Twilight Zone. It's too scary for me. All right, I'm. I am looking at 1960. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so the Hugos for 1960, and I, I do. I make a point not to to get ahead of myself because I don't want to spoil myself, and I don't want to be looking at stories going. Well, I know this is going to be a good one, so I'm going to be sure to be fair to it or or mean to it. I, I want to come to every story and go, oh that. That was surprisingly good, and then find out it was completely neglected or or story. Like, nah, that kind of sucked, and then oh, everybody loves it though. Um, so, for instance, uh, I know that people really liked um, Rogue Moon, um, and I think mm-hmm. it's eventually mm-hmm. going to win the Hugo. But I, I did not much care for it. Last year, 1960, um, they reviewed what came out in 1959. So the best novel was Starship Troopers, uh, and. And I did not disagree with that. Starship Troopers was a fantastic book, um, although I originally read it in magazine form where it was only about two-thirds as long and and clearly was lacking. Mm-hmm. Um, fantasy and science fiction had this thing where it would take novel-length stuff and cut it down for size, and and it would be it would it would just not work. Um, and I always found that surprising. Yeah, um, I, I but re- there's something. So everybody knows Starship Troopers. Everybody mm-hmm. knows Robert Heinlein. Um, but how many people know the nominees? So you had Gordy Dixon's Dorsai. I guess that's kind of popular. Oh yes, that was that was very not as very well popular. known as as it should be these days. But you know, once HBO picks it up, man, you know. <laughs> right, right. Well, I, I honestly didn't like it very much. Um, I like Gordy Dixon, but I, I did not particularly like Dorsai. But mm-hmm. uh, Murray Leinster's Pirates of Erzats. Who even knows who Murray Leinster is? Oh, Murray Leinster. Oh, yes. Um, that sweet little old lady by Mark Phillips, which is Randall Garrett and Lawrence Jennifer. Um, mm-hmm. That was actually a pretty good book, uh, despite having Randall Garrett co-writing it. I find when Randall Garrett works with others, he's pretty good. But when he works by himself, he he, he writes Queen Bee, which is possibly the most misogynist work I've ever read. Uh, oh, Flowers for Algernon. Flowers for Algernon was a fantastic, fantastic story. And, and it deserved all the praise and all the accolades it got. And... The only sad thing about it is, I remember Isaac Asimov asked Daniel Keyes, how did you do that? And Daniel Keyes, please tell me, because I'd like to do it again. And he never did. He he wrote a couple of other stories that were okay, but Flowers for Algernon was 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 it. Um, well, and if that's what he had in him, That's that was it. Well, yeah. and, uh, but by the time I was in grade school, uh, Flowers for Algernon was in every English textbook. Right. Every and deservedly one. so. And, yes, and it it was the subject. I mean, every fifth grader had to read the thing and write a report on it. And it and uh, wow, I'm what a powerful story. With the anguish, the first the hope and then the anguish. You know, if you look at dramatic presentations in 1960 um, for 1959, uh, Twilight Zone won. Mm-hmm. Um, and I won't say Twilight Zone didn't deserve to win, but Twilight Zone came out in October, so it was only they were only judging it on about a third of a season, which I thought was unfair. Mm-hmm. Um, and the movie that it beat out was something probably nobody has heard of. It's called The World, the Flesh, and the Devil, um, and it was a Harry Belafonte film. You're right. I've never heard of it. <laughs> You've never heard of it. <laughs> Seems like an unlikely to watch it. Yes, you do. Um, so it's got uh, Inga Stevers, uh, Jose Ferrer, and mm-hmm. Harry Belafonte. And it's an after-the-bomb film, probably was made for about $6, mm-hmm. uh, filmed in New York, uh, I guess, between 5 and 6 in the morning when nobody was on the streets. Um, and it is a beautiful story, incredibly progressive. I mean, 
it, you have to watch it. Not only is it does it have interracial, but it has suggestion of a threesome. Uh, it it's it's just a really really cool film and completely forgotten and utterly public domain. So you can you can go on YouTube huh, right now okay. and and watch it. And I highly recommend it. And that's the kind of thing that you'd miss if you only looked at, well, what does everyone tell me I should watch or read from 1960? No, read everything and then make a decision based on that. Or just follow Galactic Journey. The, um, and once again, I'm, uh, the fate of science fiction, uh, as it moves through the decades seems to be intertwined with how people perceive it in motion pictures and television, uh, there is a certain contingent of the public which simply does not read books. And uh, so they rely on these other media to give them the impressions or to give them the summaries of what these stories are about. Uh, and in, in 19... In 1961, you're relying on, you know, TV guide to tell you what, what to watch, you know? Yeah. The log line is beginning to become very important. Well, and and uh, while the uh, science fiction pulps are in decline, the uh, the science fiction movies, especially the B pictures, are uh, are just exploding. I mean, they used to make uh, they used to make movies specifically to send to um, uh, the southern states, you know, Georgia and North Carolina, and you know. Places like that to run in drive-ins. They were drive. They were B pictures made specifically to put in those drive-in movies because uh, people would go to them and not care what was on the screen because they're busy doing something else. And what, what would that be, Gene? <laughs> Gene and I are just old enough to have canoodled in in a drive-in. So just let's let's leave it with canoodling, shall we? Back back when canoodle was a dirty word. <laughs> yes. Mm. Here in Thurman country. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the it's interesting you say that right around 1961 is when you stop having the the double feature stops being such a big deal. Mm -hmm. The production values are starting to go up. Um, you get some surprising hits. So last year we covered George Powell's The Time Machine. Yes. Um, yes. and that was a surprise hit and, and anybody today, you, you probably, it's iconic that, that, that machine and, mm -hmm. and, uh, that, and, and my daughter loved that movie. So, so here's, here's the fun thing. So I'm not 55. I'm, I'm 42. I did not live through this time. I don't really have any rose tinted memories of it. Um, and my daughter is 12, and she's been along for the journey for several years now. She's been watching Twilight Zone with me every week as it comes out. Um, she's been watching all the movies with me, and recently she's actually started to co-write the reviews with me. Oh, so nice. she comes from a very modern standpoint. She's she's got a, a smartphone. She's she's on YouTube. She's she's something of a of a of a internet celebrity herself, and. So she's very steeped in modern times, and yet she can appreciate these these old things. We watched the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. Oh, that's oh, yeah. good stuff. Uh -huh. And she was like, "Oh, these special effects are really cool." Yeah, and uh, they were even. More, I think one of the things that made them even more approachable was that everybody knew they were done with physical materials. That if you were clever enough. Uh, and industrious enough, you could do something like that yourself. And many filmmakers did. It was an inspiration. 
and a whole wave of uh, new uh, special visual effects artists and and uh, people who loved science fiction cinema came out of that time as a and, result of that. And every kid with a Super 8 camera and, right. and, and you know, plasticine My, clay. Myself included. Uh-huh. You know, uh, uh, had an opportunity to participate in this world. And it was just, it was right there, you could touch it. Uh, and, uh, and I think we've lost some of that immediacy. Yeah. Um, over the years, and uh, in, well, yes and no. Any kid you know, with a you know, who can can use you know poser and uh, um, I'm losing the you know Photoshop, not Photoshop, yeah, but, but you, know. you know what the, the for a school project last year um, inspired by Harryhausen, mm-hmm. uh, she used a digital camera. She used, her, uh-huh. she used her cell phone um, and did a stop motion movie and and sewed up all the pictures with her computer. So everything was done on the computer, and yet it was all – it might as well have been a Harryhausen stop motion aesthetic. So so there there's an example of old, old techniques facilitated mm-hmm. by new technologies. So I think this idea that they just don't do it that way anymore or things are all different now, kids don't understand. I, it people depends have been on saying the kid. that forever. The, the fact is 1961 is as much a living, breathing year as 2016. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's why it's fun to visit. And not only, not only is it fun to visit, but you get to look and see, oh, that, that's where that came from. Oh, that's, that's where that phrase comes from. That's who that person, that's what William Shatner did before Star Trek. Yes, oh, yes. yes indeed. That, uh, he that, was, he was a, a cutie pie too. Yeah, that, uh, so that wonderful episode of the Twilight Zone. Which one? Two of them. He was, he was, oh, he's, two, uh, of them. Th- two of them or three of them? Actually. Two, I thought. Two? There's the one with the, the, um, the fortune telling machine and then there's the one in the airplane. There's something on the there's wing. Something on, <laughs> something on the wing. Yeah. Which I haven't seen yet. That that oh, that sorry. episode does not yet oh. exist for us. Okay. They actually, Spoilers. in, in, uh, uh, in the movie Airplane. Uh, they actually did. They actually uh, spoofed that, and uh, there's. I think there's a scene with him in it, where he where he uh, airplane looks out on the two. Way. He was airplane in, two. He was in that. There's a there was a funny bit in um, Third Rock from the Sun, where um, William Shatner as as the the alien boss comes off of a terrible uh, flight on on an airplane, and. Um, John Lithgow, who was in the Twilight Zone movie in the remake of the same story, said, yeah, that happened to me once. <laughs> so, um, let's see. But meanwhile, back at galacticjourney.org. So do we touch on fandom of the period of, of 55 years ago? Because certainly it was a going concern. The you know, science fiction clubs were around. Nesfa and Losfus were, you know, certainly existed they were for big going concerns. Then. So, so fandom is an interesting thing because it it's something that I can never be part of, except tangentially, because I don't live fifty five years ago. In a way, I'm sort of creating my own fan club that doesn't talk to any of the other ones. Mm. Um, but that said, when I and, and and so, for instance, I'll do convention reports. Uh-huh. And this yes. is this is one of the uh-huh. one of the funner conceits that I do. I will go to conventions, um, and I can only take pictures of things that could have existed in 1961 or before. So it's got to be Superman with red boxers on, mm-hmm. or Supergirl just came out, or 
Batgirl, Bat Dash Girl, but not Barbara Gordon, the original Batgirl. Right. Um, Snow mm-hmm. White, th- things that were period to the time I'll take pictures of. So I'll go to Comic Con, which has 150,000 attendees, and I'll get 30 pictures. Mm-hmm. Right. And, right, I'll, right. and I'll talk about this, this small, intimate convention in San Diego called yeah. Comic Con. Um, so I don't cover the fandom very much. Um, mm-hmm. On the other hand, I did just recently get an associate writer in England, and and to be honest, the main reason I got her, aside from the fact that she's a fine writer uh, and a blogger in her own right, Ashley Pollard, um, she, uh, in two years I want to cover Doctor Who, and that's something I can't cover myself because Doctor Who doesn't right. come to the States until the 70s. Mm-hmm. But she is constantly talking about uh, the fandom in England, um, and then the fan feud between uh, the people who who consider fandom just a bunch of friends getting together at the pub and others who want to make it an organized official membership card sort of affair. So so we're definitely touching on it. But I, I think there's enough to cover in just the professional stuff that I tend not to get into the fandom yeah. too much. Because they had you – know, they didn't – there was a whole different set of abbreviations, but they had what a, what amounts to blogs and convention reports. They had fanzines. They, had they fanzines. absolutely had mm-hmm. fanzines, and what yeah. I have would be a fanzine. Okay. Uh, in fact, I call it that. Um, it's just Michael. not not done with like a mimeograph. <laughs> it's it's done with a computer mimeograph. Yeah. Well, and and up until uh, up until the late nineteen seventies, early eighties, that's how it was done. Uh, Mike Glyer's got file770.com, and he he won Hugo's when it was a a paper fanzine, and now he's made the transition successfully to Mm -hmm. a digital fanzine, but it's still a fanzine. Yeah, Um, yeah, absolutely. He's got enough Hugo's he could go bowling. You'd have a bowling league with the with the statues. (laughs) Oh, it's funny, too. Mike Glyer and I got into a... a, I I, I will not say... I will not say we were heated. He he did not like my my blog at first, um, and he was vocal about it on his site. And then uh, a few months later, he started to comment on my site and re- reblog my site. So I, I think he's, I think he's okay with it now. Yeah, well, he's another fun. one who was alive during that time period, and right. So, so uh, you know. and knew other people who were active. Right, and his, uh, he, and and a lot of people are into the fandom. Are really mm-hmm. and. And the fans often think that the, the the fans the fans create this sort of extra layer around the stuff being done, and 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 that's significant and important. These are the people who run the conventions and and do the commentary, and and often are the next generation of writers. I mean, B. Joe Trimble and John Trimble in the early '60s are organizing caravans to Worldcon, and a few years from now are going to be organizing campaigns to keep Star Trek on the air. So, and then they're and they're they're going to be writers in their own right so so it's very important it's just it's it unless i quit my day job (laughs) i can't cover Uh both the pro and the fan scene at the same time i will cover harlan ellison when he when he publishes not when he writes for the zines yeah it's uh well but he's he's already writing for the outer limits uh, he's already right. He, uh, Outer Limits hasn't come out yet, but he he has actually published stuff. Harlan Ellison's interesting in that he publishes in places that are not your typical outlets for science fiction. Oh, and like of your, course he, your Playboy. And he, he'd, and... he'd, he'd punch you in the nose if you called him a science fiction author. If he could reach that high. <laughs> I am about his height. So <laughs> I... my, my wife is shorter. Yeah, well, there you are. Yeah, that's... Uh, I think the... Uh, I think right around this era was when the fans started really thickening up, you know, as you say, into uh, 
this extra wrapper layer around uh, around the science fiction and fantasy that was being written at the time. And uh, they start developing into their own society and uh, with their own awareness and recognition of one another and and uh this is where the quotes and the in in language the slang terms mm-hmm. i don't know why more more science fiction slang hasn't made it onto the internet because some of them are very useful well such as um the one i like is raybink r-a-e-b-n-c which is read and enjoyed but no comment i guess that's hmm. been replaced by the like button or something but, <laughs> but yeah. you know um, useful things but it's uh it's a societal shift at that point um, right around um uh, the early 1960s is when uh the fans start to become aware that they are in fact um a subculture on their own well we didn't have the word subculture before they're just a bunch of wackos <laughs> yeah and but it's still all about the books in nine, around the turn of the uh, the, the 1960s around the turn of the decade it's still all about the books and we didn't have uh uh we didn't have cosplay as, as such oh hell you didn't i mean we had it but it wasn't but they, we were we were building have, costumes have out of the World books Con. have you well have you been to worldcon in the 50s um, that's right it's, you know. it's full of costumes uh, well, it was but it was all fanac yes uh-huh. there's a perfectly good word yeah uh, fanac fanac yes. uh, 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 the uh, fanac got a, a lovely database of pictures mm. which i i shamefully uh, crib whenever possible but i also give credit um and uh and they've got fans in some beautiful costumes. So, and oh. Randy Garrett running around as uh-huh. Henry VIII, and well, and and well, he could pull it off though. But, he could. <laughs> but once again, once again, the costumes are all based on things that people had read. Uh, well, and sure, people had know, access to the media they had access to. I mean, TV was only right, ten years old, and, right? And, exactly. So, so the the written word was still uh, the core and center of what science fiction fandom was all about. And you could make up your own costumes, and and people would and, like them. Yeah, and <laughs> and people would go, "Oh, I recognize this from the description in the book." You, you have and, to remember, though, in, in 1961, even. Movie science fiction movies was over a generation old. I mean, Frau and Mond had come out, you know, more than twenty five years before that. Um, World War Two had had seen V twos uh, plenty. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so movies were very familiar. Uh, Frankenstein, Dracula, uh, Martians, all this stuff was was. Movies were very much a critical part of it, and I think people were cosplaying that. So you, you're right; the books were king but there also was enough visual media even at the time that it was a big deal and and a lot of how the average person got a comprehension of science fiction much to the dismay of people who are writing the more highbrow stuff mm-hmm. that, think- that that crazy buck rogers stuff right flash <laughs> gordon yeah exactly I, and and that stuff formed the foundation of so much of what we think of as as just stock and trade sci-fi now but you know what? It, it hasn't. That hasn't changed. I mean, you can look at the new Star Trek movies, and you might enjoy them. They might be a hoot to you, but they are essentially Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers. There's there is no oh, science no fiction content it. to them. There's no deep philosophy to them. Well, and, and Star Wars is the same thing. It's just sure. 
And you, you know, and you may love Star Wars. I'm not dissing anybody for liking or disliking Star Wars. It's but, the hero's but journey. But it's very consciously with... evokes Flash mm-hmm. Gordon. I mean, that was that was Lucas's plan. So yeah. so the idea that thing they they didn't know what they were doing back then, or we've lost it, or whatever. It, I think it's been the same for the last hundred years. Yeah, I I think you're right. I the uh, what I find well, if appealing. You were right, the, cast, the Canticle for Leibowitz wouldn't have been a, an important book. I mean, there, there there I think there was a lot more. Emotional development in the in the literary world. Yeah, that's that's certainly true. Uh, and that's the, that's where we did our real growing. Mm-hmm. It mirrors in some ways uh, the steampunk movement, and the reason I say that, you know, she's she's snickering. I'm over snickering. There. But the reason I say that is that it is it gives you the opportunity to imagine the future. As it was. As it was in 19, you know, uh, 55 years ago. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, with the steampunk movement, it's the future as it was in the time of Jules Verne. But well, it's, they it's even a very... have a genre called atom punk, which is the, the future as, as oh. viewed from the 50s. Um, so I, 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 in a lot of ways, I suppose you could say what I'm doing is atom punk, although it's... Not consciously. It's, it's not, you're not, you're not uh, uh, really well, pushing he... that button very hard. Oh, yes, he is. Well, to well, a, I think to a so point, because but, he's he's immersed in it the, he, exactly as much as the steampunk people are immersed in their conceit. Well, but it's just a different scenario. But the conceit here is is one of uh, societal observation and the the current events of the day. And whereas with steampunk, it's very much about style. Well, have you seen my new suit that I wore at Comic Con? I thought it was fairly <laughs> oh, I did, stylish. I, did, I think the word I used was dapper. <laughs> I did indeed, and and there is a picture uh, in the article, the most recent one uh, that you posted about Comic Con nineteen Comic Con report nineteen sixty one, and how hundreds of people showed up. <laughs> yeah, hundreds. <laughs> which is of which hundreds, is adorable. Yeah. <laughs> That's just adorable, you know. Uh, and he looks dapper. Look at he him. does, and he has his tie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and the uh, the the uh, uh, is that him? The fedora. That's him. Mm-hmm. I, I think the real trick, and I think what's different about my site from anybody else's site, and not taking away from anybody else's site, everybody everybody has a, a reason they're doing it, and they're all valuable and important and good. I, I read all all the reviews I can find, and they're all they're probably more literary and more qualified than I am. But they all come from the perspective of looking back. This is what science fiction was like fifty years ago. This. This is what it meant when people read Stranger in a Strange Land. Little, little did David Gerald know that eventually he would be. It's very uh-huh. now looking back. And the difference between mine and everybody else's is you are then looking forward. When you go to my site, mm-hmm. you see a Twitter feed and it's constantly updated at least three times a day with all the new events and, and not just big things like Kennedy or, or space shots, but advertisements and fashion. I'm going to have a fashion columnist coming on in November. Um, it is very much trying to capture the zeitgeist of the mm-hmm. time and then go, hey, and here's the cool things that are coming out right now, and here's some things we're looking forward to in a little bit, and here's a science fiction story about what's coming up in five years, and here's a science fiction story or a science fiction mm-hmm. movie about what's happening in a hundred years. It's back then looking forward. Like like this wonderful uh, tweet, happy 67th birthday, Aldous Huxley, author of Brave New World, promoter of euphonic agents. 
And euphoric. Euphoric. Yeah, euphoric. He, he, he was, he was I, in the masculine. You know, as so many of us are. <laughs> of course. Oh, we need Soma. We need Soma today. <laughs> oh, he, he wrote an article just last year. I say last year. Uh, uh, tenses are really bad with me because I live in two time periods. Mm-hmm. He wrote an article last year about uh-huh. about Soma and, and drugs and how they're how they're good and how we should make them better and how it'll make our life cooler and that that came out in fantasy and science fiction it was great well you know he called it soma we call it like wellbutrin you know we call right. it call it uh, lots of things <laughs> well thank you very much for joining us on this week's episode of the event horizon 1961 it's a good year and we, you were there we have been talking to gideon marcus who is the proprietor and operator of galacticjourney.org a time capsule, a living time capsule, if you will, uh, that looks into science fact and fiction as it was 55 years ago from the perspective of someone living in that time. Thank you for joining us on, on the show. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to episode 145 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for August 6th, 2016. Our guest this evening has been Gideon Marcus, a.k.a. The Traveler, the creator and editor of GalacticJourney.org. Your hosts have been Susan Fox and Gene Turnbow. This episode will air again on Sunday, August 7th, 2016, at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, and two more times on the following Tuesday and Saturday mornings at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern. Once all of the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode and others on iTunes, Stitcher, and our own website at kryptonradio.com as podcasts. If you are an artist, writer, actor, or other creator, and you would like to appear as a guest on The Event Horizon, please contact our production manager, Kat Carter, at catcarter at kryptonradio.com. Krypton Radio is substantially listener-supported, and if you enjoy hearing The Event Horizon each week, please consider becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash kryptonradio, just five green pieces of paper a month. That's all we ask. This program is copyright 2016 by Krypton Media Group, Incorporated. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.